0: morning, we are going to review the well-known Easter story that never grows old or dull. We may be able to recite the meaning of the Easter story, his death and resurrection, but we'll never be able to fully grasp all that it means, all of its glory, because it comes from a God who is infinitely glorious. And when he thought of what did he what he wanted to say to his creation, he decided to say it most eloquently through the life, death and resurrection of his son. So this story, this gospel story is is full of glory. And though we may be familiar with it, we'll never ever stop growing in our understanding of the depths of it. One thing that God does in this particular text in Matthew 27, is he uses irony to make a point. He uses irony to make a point. matter of fact, the title of the message this morning is The Easter Story, A Cosmic Irony. Now that's not a word we use a lot, and I had a friend of mine make fun of how I said it, but I think that's how New Englanders say irony, right? You guys say irony if you've ever heard the word irony. But irony is, is something... It's a word, and there's really no other word that quite describes irony besides that word. It describes something where there's a hidden twist, where things are actually quite the opposite of what we think they are. An ironic story would be if a fire extinguisher factory caught on fire and burned to the ground. That would be ironic. Uh, Another bit of irony, when I go to the bank every year around July 4th, some sad irony, there's, a, there's these little figurines that have the American eagle with a flag behind it, very patriotic. And if you take that figurine and turn it upside down, it says, Made in China. And if you know something about where they make the figurines, they typically make them in the prisons. And who are in some of the Chinese prisons? Yet People who are there for democracy. So that's very ironic. Those little figures are ironic. Another bit of irony is that there's a healthcare center named after Hannah Dustin. We know Hannah Dustin, the history of what went on, her having to slay her Indian captors, so it's just kind of ironic, almost like a Hannah Dustin hair replacement center or something like that. So that's irony. Irony is when things turn out just the opposite of what we would expect. There's, there's irony in this Easter story, and it's put there on purpose. God himself has given us this irony in this story, that we might get the points, that we might, through the drama of irony, understand how incredible this Easter story is. So as we anticipate the Lord speaking through this, this morning, speaking through His Word, let's pray. Lord, we just thank You for this story. The story of the Gospel. And we thank You, Lord, that You are a creative, infinitely glorious God, and You've given us this Word and the use of irony in this section that we might understand more about You. And so we ask You, God, this morning to come and speak to us. We thank You, Lord, that You're committed to this. And it's amazing, Lord. I am not worthy, Lord, of being used by You, but You are gracious and love us and love Your people. So we thank You and we just... Anticipate You speaking to us through Your Word this morning and ask You to do this for Your glory. In Jesus' name, Amen. Amen. I'm going to start in verse 27 of chapter 27 and read through. You can just listen as I go through this. Uh, Matthew, Matthew chapter 27, sorry. In case you were wondering. Matthew 27, verse 27. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters. And they gathered the whole battalion before Him. And they stripped Him and put a scarlet robe on Him. And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on His head and put a reed in His right hand. And kneeling before Him, they mocked Him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they spit on Him And they took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they offered him wine to drink, mixed with gall. But when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, One on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the King of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now, if he desires him. For he said, I am the Son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders, hearing it, said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the others said, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. There were also many women there looking on from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee ministering to Him among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Joseph and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. Matthew chapter 27, 27-56. to We'll read a little more later. In this section of Scripture there are three ironic things, three ironies in this story that the Lord uses to teach us about Him. And I am indebted to D.A. Carson for his wonderful exposition of these ironies. The three ironies, and then these ironies are vindicated ultimately in the resurrection. They're not just the invention of the author who wrote the text. They actually come from the infinite, eternal God that we might grasp the glorious implication of this story about Jesus of Nazareth, the Christ. The first irony I want to talk about this morning is that the one who is marked as king is king, indeed. The one who is marked as king is king, indeed. And our text this morning, it opened with the scene in the praetorium, the headquarters of the Roman soldiers, and they're mocking Jesus. They've scourged Him. They've stripped His clothes off and put on Him a scarlet robe and this mock crown of thorns. And they give Him a reed as a pathetic scepter. And they're making great sport of Jesus. They kneel before Him and with cutting sarcasm, as ones who probably despise the Jewish people and certainly would have despised their King, say, Hail, King of the Jews! And they spit on Him and they strike Him with the scepter. The ironic thing is what they were saying was truth. He is the King of the Jews. He is the King of the Jews. The very Gospel of Matthew starts out the first line of the Gospel. It says, The book of genealogy of Jesus Christ, the Son of David. If you want to look there, the very first verse. says this is the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Christ means King. The Son of David. David was the King of Israel some thousand years before Christ. And that term, Son of David, was reserved for someone who was an heir to the throne and ultimately reserved for the long-expected king who would take David's throne and rule his people. So they're mocking him as the king of the Jews and he is the king of the Jews. Not only that, not only what they say and they're mocking, but what they do is ironic as well. For they bow their knees before him and confess that he is the king of the Jews. They bow their knees and they confess this is the king of the Jews. They're doing it mockingly, but in reality... We know from Philippians chapter 2 that at the end of all time, at the end of the judgment, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So they are mockingly doing this. In reality, there will be a day when even these Roman soldiers kneel before Jesus and say the same thing that they said that day. Jesus Christ is Lord. Hail, King of the Jews, they will say one day and mean it. Now, Either they'll mean it, and they'll be sorrowful for it, or they'll mean it, and they'll be joyful for it. Every person will fall into one of those two categories. And so that's ironic, that they would confess and mock him, yet say the truth. And they're mocking the king of the Jews, who is the king of kings, the very one who gave these soldiers the ability to think, have thoughts, and speak words, and Do things came from Jesus Himself. He's the Creator and the Sustainer of all things. And so He's there as the King of Kings. And they're mocking Him. Yet what they say is actually true. That He is all those things. And yet He's a King unlike any other King. Unlike any other King in the world. For He is a servant of king. He comes as servant as all. He came to endure the scorn of his enemies, to allow people to mock him, to endure mockery and death for the sake of his enemies. He's a king unlike any other king. And this, this scene and what he goes through and the mockery that they subject him to is a sign of that this is a king unlike any other king who has ever been or who ever will be. This is a king who is a servant and who gives his life for his very enemies. He's a king who would say on the cross of his Roman soldiers who were mocking him and deriding him, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He is a king unlike any other king. He's the king of kings. And I don't know about you, but if I were there and I were like I was when I was young, before I understood who He was, I would have been mocking right along with Him. I would have been deriding Him right along with Him. As a matter of fact, I did that. I didn't come to know Christ truly till I was 17. And I can remember with, with some shame things I used to do. Ways I used to mock Christ and mock His followers too. Make fun of them. I can remember... One Holy Week even, telling sacrilegious jokes about Jesus to my friends that were so shocking my friends didn't even really laugh. Yet I enjoyed it. I was a mocker too. And yet this King came for me. This King came for you to rescue us from our ignorance and our sin and our mocking. He is the King of Israel, the King of kings. There's none like Him. So the one who they mocked as king is indeed king. That's the first irony. The second is that the one who is utterly powerless is transcendently powerful. The one who is weak in the story, the Christ, is most powerful. Throughout the ministry of Jesus, he is demonstrating his power over and over again. The miracles of Jesus flow from the compassion of God, but they also flow from the desire to demonstrate that Jesus is God, that Jesus is powerful. And if you look at the miracles, particularly how they're structured in John, they're there to make a statement that He is Lord and powerful over all things. He's powerful over the weather and creation, so He stills the storm at a word. Can you imagine being on that boat? You're in a, you're in a storm. The boat's rocking. It's going to sink. You're in trouble. And Jesus, with a mere word, says, Peace, be still. No more storm. That's power. Later on, he raises the dead. The widow's son, the widow of Nain, and Lazarus. There's people who are actually dead. And he demonstrates his power by speaking. Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus comes forth alive. He demonstrates his power over sickness and over the demonic realm, throughout His ministry. And yet we find Him at the very end of His ministry, His earthly ministry, weak and powerless. Subjected to the cross. Subjected to shame. In a most pitiful state of weakness. So He's before His accusers. He doesn't say anything. He doesn't defend Himself. He's scourged. And He's so weakened by it all, that he can't even carry his own cross to that hill. Now that was normal. Prisoners usually would carry their cross to the hill. They could do that. Jesus was so weakened by the whole ordeal that he couldn't carry his own cross member. And so Simon of Cyrene had to do it. That's why that's there in Scripture. To, to make it clear that he's very weak at this moment. He is, he is coming under The brutality of the crucifixion and the implications of the crucifixion. That He would bear sin and be rejected by His Father. And so He's falling under that. He's weak. And He's choosing not to say a word. Now He could have. He could have said the word. He could have asked God for power to take Himself off the cross or to to be strengthened through it. And yet He subjects Himself to weakness. And His mocker is picked up on this. And so they say things to Him like, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. Jesus had actually said that earlier on in His ministry. In the beginning of His ministry, He went to the temple and, and He came and, and the temple was filled with, with basically swindlers and, and people just trying to make money off of the temple sacrifices. And they had, had really caused a problem in the temple, distracted the temple from its purpose. And so he goes in and he clears the temple out and they say, by what right do you have to do this? And what he says is, destroy the temple. He says to his questioners, destroy the temple and in three days I'll rebuild it. Now they probably listened and thought, what are you talking about? Who do you think you are? That is an audacious claim. This temple took years and years. It's it's glorious. Destroy it and in three days you're going to rebuild it? Who do you think you are? And so He's on the cross and they're reminding Him of that. Oh yeah, there He is. The guy he said He'd rebuild the temple in three days. He can't even get off the cross. He can't even save Himself. The Son of God are you, huh? God's Son. Why don't you take yourself off the cross if you're so powerful? The irony of His weakness. He who is most powerful. And the irony that in that weakness... And in subjecting Himself to the crucifixion and the shame of the crucifixion, that was when He was most strong. And it was through that that He accomplished the most powerful thing He accomplished. Because He was in fact having the temple be destroyed and was in fact going to restore it in three days. For the temple He spoke of was not the building of the temple, but the ultimate temple. The temple is the place where the people of God meet God and find their forgiveness before God. The ultimate temple is Jesus Christ. It is in Him that we find God and find our forgiveness. And this temple was being destroyed. And it was going to be rebuilt in three days. So in His weakest moments and in His weakness, He was most powerful. He accomplished a most powerful goal of rebuilding the temple That's the irony of the cross. And that's the irony of the Christian life, too. We are strongest when we're weak. And God designs life. Yes, there's much blessing. Yes, we taste of the kingdom. Yes, God heals. God meets us. God strengthens us. But also, we know weakness. And to be a Christian, to be a person, a human being, is to experience weakness. And to be a Christian, the good news is that God designs the weakness that we experience to show His strength. So all the suffering, the sickness, persecution, rejection that we go through is designed by God that in our weakness we might find His strength. And in our weakness, when we are weak, He will show Himself strong. And that's the testimony of God's people throughout the ages. Peter, his weakness was exposed on Thursday. On Friday, as he denied Christ, saw himself as an ultimate failure, yet God raised him up and strengthened him to lead his church. Paul suffered the thorn in the flesh, probably some physical problem. The saints throughout history have experienced the same thing, and every leader has weakness. Luther and Spurgeon, different leaders, Martin Luther, Charles Spurgeon in the 1800s, both struggled seriously with depression, yet God used them powerfully. Billy Graham, we know Billy Graham today. If you read his story, he struggled, and probably does, with shyness and a sense of his limitation in his speaking gift. Yet, God's used him to bring the good news of Christ to, to millions and millions. So let us embrace our weakness with the Savior. For when we are weak, then we're strong in Him. The third irony of the Easter story is that the one who can't save himself saves others the one who can't save himself saves others they make the statement to him he saved others he cannot save himself and they're mocking him for that went around yeah you did all this great stuff you saved people you raised the dead you rescued people from sickness you took care of the poor you did all this stuff you saved lots of people you can't save yourself though and you know what they were exactly right that was the whole point that was the whole point that in order for him to bring salvation to really save people he had to not save himself in order for him to save others he had to not save himself because he was after a salvation that was deeper than physical healing even deeper than being raised from the dead like Lazarus and the widow's son were Deeper than all those things. Because there's a more significant problem than sickness. There's a more significant problem than just physical death. He knew that he had to go through the cross in order to save others. You see, the reality is that we as humans are sinful. We're born with this curse of sin we all inherit. And because of that inclination that is in all of us, we eventually choose to sin, to do things that are in opposition to God. There's just this drive in us that is an insane drive that wants to deny God, that wants to make sure that if anybody is the center of our life, it's not God. Now, we'll pretend sometimes He is, but naturally left to ourselves, we don't want to have Him as the center of our lives. We want to have ourselves. And so we will actively suppress the truth. Thinking, again, as as a youth, I can remember mocking some Christians and they shared about Christ and the Gospel. And there was a young man, some of you have heard the story, he was just like me. And he got up there and he said, I was in trouble, I I did drugs, I was chased by the police, I had broken relationships, and then then Christ found me. And he shared his testimony. And I remember saying, what a loser. What a loser. You need Jesus. But I was doing the same stuff. And yet, because of my sin, I was denying the truth. I was suppressing the truth. The Scriptures actually teach us that we will suppress the truth. And we'll be blind to the truth. And that is the situation we are all in. And we think that we can do it and escape the gaze of God somehow. Get away without God knowing. Yet God is good. And He's just. And He's all-knowing. And He sees us in all our plots and plans. Now, we don't like to hear about this stuff. And I don't like necessarily to talk about it. But when you go to the doctor, and in order to get better, first you have to hear the bad news. You've got to hear reality. And we don't like to hear it. We'd like to deny it because it's unpleasant. And that's like saying I'm not sick. When, you're, when you are sick, and you need to go to the doctor. We need to hear that we're sick and we've got this situation. And if we are truly honest with ourselves, we'll, we'll admit that. And I, we use a simple illustration in the Alpha program to describe this, to, to help us understand that this is reality. If we were somehow able to put a little computer chip in your brain and record all your thoughts for the following week, And then next Sunday, for entertainment, we're going to put it up on the screen. And we're going to watch your thoughts the entire week. Who here would want to be here to watch your own thoughts for the week? No, we'd all skip out of town and never come back. That's the reality. And so, really what we're doing, and what the Scriptures do with us, is they're just honest. They give us the truth we need to hear. Not for the sake of being morbid. For the sake of finding the cure. And the reality is is that we are willfully rebellious against God. And God is good and holy and just and He will not permit sin to enter His presence. He must judge us. He must deal with us. He wouldn't be good if He just swept it under the rug. And so, someday we will all stand before this good and perfect and holy God who, who always, in the, in, as God the Son, obeyed every good commandment, loved God with all His heart, soul, mind, and strength, loved His neighbor as Himself. And we're going to stand before this perfect standard and have to have some sort of explanation. That's why Jesus came. That's what salvation means. Because left to ourselves, standing before the Holy Judge, none of us have an excuse but to say guilty as charged. And the clear penalty in Scripture is eternal separation from God. Eternal separation from all that is good and right and worthy. All that has real life. Separation from that. Hell is a terrible place to be. And the worst thing about it is that God is absent in His goodness in hell. And that's the penalty of sin. It's a fearful thing to fall in the hands of the living God, the good, holy, and just God. And yet the same Jesus who said, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul, rather fear Him who can destroy both soul and body in hell, this same Jesus went to the cross to save us from such a fate. And so He came to save us from our sins because God so loved the world that He gave His Son to rescue us. And so the statement that they said to Jesus in mocking Him, He saved others, He can't save Himself, was exactly true. Because in order for Him to rescue us, to rescue others, to save others, He had to endure our penalty on the cross. Bear the holy, just, good wrath of God. Pay for it completely. Drink the cup to every last drop, that cup of God's wrath, all the way down till it was finished. And pay the penalty. And then rise again from the dead, victorious over sin and death. So He couldn't save others in order to save us. To rescue us, to shed his blood because of the fierce justice of God and the fierce love of God. The Son agreed to do this. One final point that these three ironies the one who is mocked as king is king, the one who is weak is ultimately powerful, the one who saved others couldn't save himself are ultimately vindicated through his resurrection. So turn with me to chapter 28, verses 1 to 10. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, And His clothing white as snow. And for fear of Him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus, who is crucified. Come, see the place where He lay. Then go quickly and tell His disciples that He has risen from the dead. And behold, He is going before you to Galilee. There you will see Him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy, and ran to tell His disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings! And they came up and took hold of His feet and worshipped Him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell My brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see Me. Matthew 28, 1-10. If the band could come forward as we, as we close. This Jesus, who was mocked as King, is King. Is King of all. And His resurrection testifies that the Father says, I approve. You are indeed My King. And I now institute you as King of all. And He now leads His subjects in the same victory that He won. Victory over sin and death. All those who would turn from self and sin and and trust Him and follow Him. He leads us in victory. This same Jesus who is so weak He fell under the cruelty of the cross, has risen to new life, and now stands as our hope and sure promise of eternal life. This same Jesus who could not save Himself has saved all those who turn to Him. And He guarantees by His resurrection full and final salvation, forgiveness for all our sins, new life in Him, and a future hope that is as sure as His resurrection is sure. He's risen, and He's been vindicated as King, as all-powerful, as Lord and perfect Savior. So Let's pray and prepare for communion. Lord, we thank You for what You have done. And this morning, Lord, we just thank You for what You were subjected to. Thank you for enduring mocking from such as us. You demonstrated your own love in this. While we were still sinners, you died for us. While we were still your enemies, you died for us to win us. We thank you. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you were weak. That you might strongly and powerfully win our salvation. We come before you, Lord. we want to set our sights on you, the risen Savior. And all that that means, we thank you and bless you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We invite you to to participate in communion with us. If these truths are precious to you. You put your faith in Christ. We invite you just to remember Him as we celebrate communion. So let's let us worship. Prepare to take communion.
1: The mystery of the cross I cannot comprehend. The agonies of Calvary. You, the perfect Holy One, crushed your Son.
0: Drink the bitter cup reserved for
1: me. By Your perfect sacrifice I've been brought near Your enemy You've made Your friend Pouring out the riches of Your glorious grace Your mercy and Your kindness know no end Jesus, thank you, the Father's wrath, completely satisfied, Jesus, thank you, who was your enemy, now seated at your table, Jesus, thank you.
0: John chapter eleven. Jesus speaking to Mary and Martha he said, "I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die." And he said, to "Martha, do you believe?" He is the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in him, though we die, we will live as he lives. He gave his body and his blood for this purpose to win you and me from sin for himself, find forgiveness and eternal life with him. So as we prepare to take communion in a minute, let us just prepare our hearts to receive and remember the one who was resurrected for our sake. this is my body which is for you do this in remembrance of me new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's take the cup. Lord, we thank you. We receive all that you've done. We celebrate this morning. Thank you for the life you bring to us. Now, Lord, love you. We want to live for you because of this. By your grace for your glory, we thank you. We bless you. Amen. Amen. Let's close one worship
1: Love thank you the Father's wrath completely satisfied Jesus thank all you all your, your blood, blood has washed away my sin Jesus thank you the Father's wrath Your kindness, your mercy, your love for us, for dying and rising again.
0: Place on this resurrection day, remembering all that you've done. Finding our life in you and our joy and our strength. Lord, I pray you would minister to and through each one here today. We thank you that you have done it. It is finished. You have risen from the dead. You are our King. We follow you today. We thank you and bless you. God bless. Have a wonderful day.